Welcome to the Ivy Tech Podcast, powered by the MBA Tech Club here at the Ivy School of Business. I'm Sam Sim, MBA Class of 2021. Today, we're diving into the world of revenue. Usually when someone mentions the revenue team, people immediately think of account executives or account managers. But over the next couple of episodes, we'll be talking to alumni that are working in revenue roles outside of traditional sales. These are your solutions teams, your customer success managers, your sales strategists, and more. And that brings us to this week's guest. Shadi Gaddis is an MBA 2012 alumni, and he's the global director of the Consumer Products Industry Solutions Team at SAP. Shadi joined the company right after he graduated and has held a few different solutions advisory roles. You'll hear him talk about what a solutions advisor or a customer experience advisor does at a large enterprise tech company. He'll share tips on how to successfully land that role. And finally, we'll reflect on Shadi's eight years at SAP and what he's learned about career progression during that time. All right, let's get started. Shadi, how have you been? All good. It's been an interesting summer, interesting first uh, first half of the year, but uh, things are, are going good as they can be. And where are we talking to you from today? I am based out of Montreal, so just uh, just in the suburb, suburbs of Montreal, um, taking this call out of my basement. I like to start this podcast out by going way back. And what I mean by that is going back to when you were doing your MBA, I'd love to understand what types of um, dreams and aspirations you had career-wise when you were at Ivy and what types of industries and roles did you explore? Yeah, I'd say, um, interestingly enough, when, when I... I didn't have like a clear career path coming into Ivy. I was pretty, um, I didn't know what I didn't know, right? All I knew is I wanted to solve bigger problems that were both in technology and business. You know, that was a part that always had a deep interest for me. Um, so I, I came in with pretty much an open mind saying, you know, I, I want to do something where I can tackle big problems. And that's what led me to Ivy. And through Ivy, I learned, you know, you learn all of these careers that you didn't even know existed. You know, I didn't know what management consultants were. I didn't know a lot of these other things. And, you know, you just go in there with an open mind and, and learn and try to figure out what fits best what you want to do. So right after Ivy, you join SAP, this large enterprise software company, and you join as a solutions advisor. Tell me more about that role. Yeah. So basically, um, when you get into enterprise software sales, um, I, I call it like the there's three main customer facing roles. There's the account executive, basically the person that has a sales quota that goes and sells. You have a second role that is called value engineering or value management. Um, and that role is typically you know, they hire out of MBA. So they're looking at management consulting style uh, backgrounds. It's it's really around driving business cases, financial statement, you know, financials, net present value, IRRs. So that's the traditional, you know, MBA baggage. And, and the solution advisory role is really the role that, you know, shows the customer how the technology solutions solve the business problems that they're faced with. And traditionally, that role is filled by people that have been implementing the software for many years. So when I came into the role, a lot of the people were, you know, 10, 20 years veteran implementing these pieces of software. So the VP that hired me and hired a cohort of people like me wanted was looking for people who could be a bit of blend between value and solution, who could talk about these solutions, but link it back to business value. And um, that's what I really started to do. 
right? Um, because they did not have all of that, you know, 10 plus years of experience, hands-on implementing that software in customer sites. Um, so that was really the interesting part is really being, being able to craft a bit that role in a different way based on that executive's vision. I want to unpack that role more. It sounds like the solution advisor is working closely with an account executive to get the sale over the finish line, but how are the responsibilities divided between these two positions? Yeah, so I'd say like there's three three major parts to a sales cycle. You know, there's the prospecting side and qualifying. Then there's the sales cycle where you do, you know, you understand the business problem, you understand what's the value it's going gonna, it's gonna to drive, you understand how your solutions fit, and you craft that vision of how the customer, what their next vision is going to, what, what is it going to, how is it going to make their life better? And then there's the third part of the sales cycle where it's the commercial close, right? It's the contracting part and so forth. So I'd say value and solution teams typically aren't involved in the two ends. That's really the account executive. And in the middle, like we do the heavy lifting, right? Because it's all about showing the customer that we understand their problem, that we have the right solution for them, and that it's going to drive the business value that they're going to have to sign up with their executive team for to get the money to buy it, right? Um, So that's really where we play. Interesting. So what are the key skills that someone would need to be successful as a solutions advisor? Yeah, I always look at it. There's three parts to the role where where I look um, in in my base is, um, and when I hire, I aim for two out of the three. So the first part is um, understanding industry business processes, right? You have to understand what's going on and the context, right? Whether you're selling solution from company A, B, or C, it doesn't matter. You still have to understand, you know, if you're selling into a retailer, uh, solutions for merchandisers, you better understand what's the world of a merchandiser. The second part is understanding technology. And that's, quite frankly, that's something you get trained on, right? Like it's, it's maybe a lower expectation, but if someone comes and understands the technology, it's a plus, but it's not mandatory. And the third one, which I think is super important is the ability to tell stories and present. It's that executive presence. Um, we've got a lot of people that understand business processes and technology really well, but they're not able to convey emotion, right? They're not able to get people to rise up and say, I want this thing. So you're always looking for that storytelling um, ability because basically you're inspiring people, right? You're, you're inspiring people to make a choice. Your biggest competition is not the other software vendor. It's status quo because people are afraid to take risks, right? They're signing up typically for something big. They're putting their jobs on the line. So you've got to inspire them to do that. So that that's actually probably the biggest part because while I believe we can train people to improve on these things, I think for the most part, people naturally have that skill set or they don't, right? It's either a core strength or it's not. So that you, you have to have a solid foundation of being able to present in front of various audiences, whether it's executives, whether it's, you know, frontline people, you have to be able to do that and speak their specific language. Let's move on to your next two roles. So after being a senior solutions advisor, you moved on to the customer solutions team and then the customer experience advisory team. What are those two teams and how do they fit within the wider organization of SAP? The customer experience was basically a rebranding of the team. Um, As acquisitions came through and the the portfolio became bigger, we just rebranded ourselves because we were more than just commerce. But the, the big thing is when you get into these complicated sales cycles where you're not just selling one solution, you're selling a digital transformation. There, there's a lot of people involved and you have to you have to align everybody, craft that strategic vision, get everybody aligned so that everybody's part 
aligns to that one vision and that all of these parts come together, right? So that you're not hearing various broken out stories, but you're hearing one story with multiple chapters. And that's, that's really the aspect, right? And once you get in these bigger deals, you're also getting into, you know, more strategic competitive. So, you know, you're competing against your typical competitors. How do you position your value proposition so, so that you, you're better reflected with a customer? What traps can you lay down, right? What, what I'm going to put in the customer's mind for them to ask when my competitor is in there so that they trip up, right? So these are the type of things we do. Um, and obviously as, you know, Customer experience is a large field. You're talking CRM, you're talking marketing solution, you're talking e-commerce, you're talking field service. You know, everything that touches you as a consumer, for example, if I, if I look at consumer industries, it, it's a lot of specialists, right? There's not a single person that is a specialist in every aspect. So you, you need people that are able to craft a strategic vision and bring it all together. And that was basically the role I stepped into for, for the Canadian market. It sounds like you act a lot like a consultant by helping your clients understand how to use or leverage SAP solutions to better meet their business objectives. Pretty much, yeah. Help me understand how a solutions advisor is evaluated. Is it some sort of sales quota or are there other performance metrics that are used to assess how well they're doing? Yeah, so it's so the interesting thing is when you're customer facing in an enterprise software company, you may not have a quota. You may not be an account executive and have a quota, but you're in sales like you have to recognize that. And although your compensation might be a bit different and you're you know, it's not that linked to the variable in the specific deal, you better know that you're in sales and that your job is to generate revenue. Right. So to me, the people that have been successful in these roles realize that and worked with the frame of mind that they own the number the same way that their sales counterparts did. So me as a customer solution director for the Canadian market, I basically put in my brain that I was the, you know, VP of sales is COO. So I was looking at the pipeline with them. I was looking at deal conversion rates. I was looking at deal risk. You know, I was working on demand management with them. I was doing, you know, that's the frame of mind. It was like, if you don't hit the number, I don't hit the number. And why is that important? Because you can't be someone's advisor if you don't have empathy for them and they don't trust you. So having that frame of mind, build the trust, building that trust lets you get close to them, letting get it becoming close to them, lets you see what goes through them and it helps you build that empathy. So to me, it's all a virtuous circle of success to, to, to do that in a role like that. I like that you talked about the strategic aspect of your role or customer facing roles in general in technology, because I think that can often differ from more traditional organizations and the customer facing roles. The great thing about technology companies is because so many, uh, so many brands or so many organizations want to become more innovative as the person at the technology company, you often get a seat at a very senior table with that client or potential customer. And so you're, you're really selling in a very strategic way. I think oftentimes there's an aversion from MBA students or business school students in general to pursue a role on a revenue team or customer facing position after graduating. I'm curious what you would say to a group of business school students and how you would pitch them on considering a revenue role or a customer facing role after graduating. Yeah. So, um, sales get a bad rap, right. For a lot of good reasons. So, you know, I won't lie. I've worked with fantastic salespeople and I've worked with salespeople that absolutely hit the stereotype, 
right, of just trying to close the sale and not caring about customer success. But the, the real good salespeople that have been around for 20 years and made club for, you know, the majority of those years, they're not trying to close a deal. They're trying to solve problems. And that's the frame of mind they have. So what I think is awesome about a sales role, and if I had to go back in my career, I would have probably, you know, now I'm at a point where I'm maybe a bit more senior and kind of harder to jump back, but I would have probably taken a sales role a lot earlier because there's there's a lot of good that comes out of it. First of all, it's, um, it puts your MBA ego in check, right? I'm going to lie, a lot of us come out of our MBAs in the first couple of years, we have a bit of an ego that needs to be popped. It's just the reality. Like it's happened with my class. It's happened with the class before. It's going to happen with your class. Um, it's just a natural part of the, the game. But there's two good things. It's you learn to hustle, right? It's not just your intelligence that comes into play. You have to make things happen. You have to have discipline. It's, you know, you have a bunch of classes in the MBA. There is no sales class. There's nobody that's teaching you how to sell. And it's one of those sales skills it's applicable anywhere, right? Because even if you're a marketer, you're selling, right? You're, not, you're maybe not selling a contract. You're maybe not, you know, managing through contracts. But at one point, you're going to have a vision and you're going to have to sell it to people above you to make it happen. You're going to have to sell your project to get budget. And a lot of the skills you learn there are just transposable. There, you know, a lot of people are like, hey, you know what? When I, what I, what I want to be in 10 years is be a GM of a division. Well, guess what? When you're a, when you're a sales rep, you are the CEO of your territory. You own that number. You make that revenue happen. Like what we see at SAP, for example, is a lot of our GMs, a lot of the people that are in management positions have done a tour of duty in sales. It's almost a rite of passage. So I, I would definitely advise people that, that it's a great place to be. There is a lot of learnings to be done. And it's really you that defines whether you're going to fit the stereotype of the typical salesperson or if you're going to be the one there to solve a customer's business problems and work collaboratively to do it. So I'm hearing uh, pursue a career in sales or at least maybe right out of grad, you can take a job in sales and you'll... Yeah, if, if you want to, right? I'm not, you know, if it's something you want to, you have to want to do. There's definitely other very noble professions out there other than sales. But it's definitely not something I would tell someone is not worth pursuing. It's There's a lot of learning there and a lot of positive that comes out of it. I want to shift a bit to talk about SAP's culture. And I'm curious yeah. what it's like to work there in, in the Canadian office. So when I joined, I thought SAP was this big, boring ERP company. You know, obviously with the acquisitions, it's a lot more than ERP. It's, you know, it's a lot bigger than I could have imagined it was, right? It's not a, you, you tell people you work at SAP, they're like, I don't know that company. You don't realize that a large amount of the country's GDP and even the world's GDP runs through an SAP system, right? If, if you're buying online on Loblaw or Metro, your groceries, you're going through an SAP system. Your hydro bill is probably going through an SAP system. Canadian Tire's e-commerce runs through an SAP system. Like you, you just can't imagine the how the economy runs thanks to SAP. But even more impressive than that, it's um it's a company with a huge heart. You know, people that are at SAP, very few of them want to leave just because of how they treat their employees. They're very good at it. Like it's it's just hard to explain all the stuff they do, but culture is, the, the culture is great, right? It's, it's a lot of trying to let the employees be autonomous, maybe because it's based out of Germany and there's a culture there of, you know, employees are family, but it's basically treated like that. You know, the benefits are amazing. You know, whenever there's been layoffs or re restructurings, it's, it was done with tremendous respect to people. So it's just a company with a big heart. 
I'm sure there are people listening right now who are thinking, I want to do what Shadi did after graduation. I want to recruit into a solutions advisor role at a large enterprise tech company. I'm curious what your advice or tips are for those individuals who are actively trying to interview right now. And how would you advise they set themselves up for success? Yeah. um, Again, I think it it depends on the role you're looking for, but these are, um, if you're looking at like, let's say value management, these are typical, you know, they typically recruit out of MBA, right? So it's showing, you know, the financial acumen and the problem solving acumen, right? It's pretty, I'd say it's pretty close to a consulting type interview, right? The way they look, looking at the two other roles, it's a bit less, um, it's a bit less traditional. So, you know, if you're going for more like the solution advisory type role, it's, it's easier if you come across with some level of expertise that you can bring to the table, right? Um, either you, you know, pre-MBA, you are a merchandiser and a retailer and you know merchandising in and out and you can position yourself for that role or you are an HR business partner and you can position yourself as a solution ex- expert in HR, right? They love these people that are not just technologists or understand product but can speak to the business. So who better speak to an HR person than someone that was doing HR? Because then you're not talking about the button that you click and, you know, this this workflow, but you're talking about the real pains and challenges that an HR professional faces or a marketer faces, right? So I'd say pretty much anybody that's in the program right now came from one of these roles that is using business software today. So I position myself like that. And if you want to be a salesperson, it's it's still today, I think, a culture where you have to make your grades, right? So you have to put your ego in check and you have to accept that you're going to start with, you know, a smaller territory of maybe more difficult customers that you have to penetrate um, and you have to work your way up, right? Or you, you come with, you have to show that you're going to grind, right? It's a bit of an entrepreneurial thing where they want to see people that aren't going to quit, Right, that aren't going to say, "Hey, you know, my territory is tough. This number is too high." They just want people that are going to try to make the number, no excuses. So, if, if you're going for that type of role, a lot of the tests in the interviews is they'll they'll do on purpose not to respond to your email to see, like, "Hey, a customer is not going to respond to your email. Are you going to follow up with them? Are you going to try calling them? Are you going to hustle me? Like, are you going to try to get my phone number elsewhere? Are you going to try to get someone to call me on the side?" Right. So, all the the hustling stuff you have to show. So, I'd say those are kind of the the things I think about for these customer-facing roles, depending on which one you're aiming for. Interesting. So I'm hearing for solutions advisory or customer-facing, you want to play up to your strengths and your experience previously to the MBA. And then for the sales role, it's uh, it sounds like it's a lot of grittiness that you're looking for. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in enterprise software, is it all about networking in order to get your foot in the door or is it more of a traditional process? It sounds like the interview itself may be quite traditional in terms of consulting or there may be a, a structure. But the reason why I ask is because I've, I've talked to um, a couple of other alum and with varying experiences, they always talk about, well, if you want to get into this particular role within tech, you're going to have to network your way in various ways because there's no structure. Or this one, it's very, very structured. You apply to this yeah. program after grad. So I'm wondering where enterprise software lands on that spectrum? I'd say it's more the network. Um, We do have some programs that are designed for like our junior talent and there's various programs that are like semi-junior. So, you know, not fresh out of undergrad, but, you know, maybe just a couple of years of experience. Um, So there are these types of structured programs that exist. But I'd say for the most part, it's it's not like consulting and investment banking where, you know, they're going to come here 
recruit and then hire, you know, all the good people they can find. Us, it's more, you know, budget years, whatever headcount we have available or on the, uh, you know, someone resigned or left or for whatever reason, we have to fill a headcount. The important thing is if you identify a company you want to work for, network with the people, make sure your name's in there, make sure they know you. The trick is always, you know, we always try to have a pipeline of talent. We basically pre-interview people so that once we get the headcount, we're not spending two months you know, putting a posting out, waiting till people apply. We pretty much have a pool of candidates that we can almost call and say, you know, you were good. The the role opened up. You still interested? That's what I would recommend. It's a lot of these roles. Um, it's it's timing, right? It's timing and luck whether they're available. So if your name is already out there and people know that you're interested and they've already pretty much made a decision that they like you, it's it's almost a formality. Let's move forward to what you're doing right now. So just this past April, you assumed the role of global director on the consumer products industry solutions team. So congratulations. And you also celebrated your eight-year anniversary at the company. Over that time, you've moved up quite steadily in the organization, and I'm sure you've learned a lot about keeping a steady drumbeat of career progression and moving forward. What advice can you share to the listeners about being successful in your career and ensuring you're constantly moving forward and upward? Yeah, so every time I've had these moves, it's because I took a chance, right? Like, you have to get out of your comfort zone. At the end of the day, like, there's... You know, we look at these things in retrospect and we're like, oh, you know, I followed this path. But the reality is at the time it was just luck. Right? There's, there's no secret to it. There was no, you know, un, unless you're in a program where you're sponsored by a senior exec where, you know, your path is created for you. A, a lot of time, this is just luck and timing. Right. I was just at the right place at the right time doing my job really, really well. And then an opportunity arises and, you know, hey, Shadi, you have the skill sets. You want to do this. It, it would have been easy for me to say, well, I, I don't know, you know, is this role, is this role going to, like, it's an experiment, is this role that's still going to be around in two years? Let me stay here because, you know, this job is cushy and safe, but jumped in it, right? And the reality is a few times it worked, it didn't work out as well, right? There's some times where the experiment was non-successful, but I got good experience and learnings out of it. So I would say jump on the opportunities, right? If, if, if you feel this right, don't wait for the perfect pitch every time because pitches don't come perfect. You just have to less chasing roles and more chasing experiences. That's the advice I would give, right? What, what experience can you add? So sometimes it's as simple as taking a side project in your same role or, you know, taking an extra assignment or working this other thing on the side. Um, there's a lot of experiences you can add without formally changing roles. And I think that's an under leveraged thing that people can can take in mind. Since we're talking about progression and career advice, I'm curious to know, out of all of the people that you've hired on your team, who has been the most successful and what did they do in order to achieve that success? It, it wasn't necessarily the most experienced person, right? I'd say that I wouldn't say there's one person that was more successful to the others, but I'd say the people that rise up are the people that understand that your progression has nothing to do with how smart you are or how hard you work. It's about how much people trust you and like you and think you're going to get things done, right? And make the right judgment calls. That's that's really what drives it. It's not working 90 hours a week. I've seen people work 90 hours a week and, and stay where they are. And I've seen people work 40 hours a week and progress really fast. It's it's the networking. It's making sure you have visibility with the right people that can make these decisions. And then when an opportunity is is 
put in front of you, you know, take the ball and run with it. So those that have done that, that realize it wasn't just about working hard in isolation, but the visibility of their work, making sure that it's work, you know, it's not visibility in the, in the crassy sense of, you know, I'm going to make sure that I'm going to have someone look at me. But by what I mean is by making sure that the work you're doing is impactful. If it's impactful, it's going to get visibility. Those, those are the common threads of people that have been successful. You know, get the culture of your organization, understand the politics of your organization. Politics sounds really negative, but politics is, you know, what I came, I came in the business in the mind of politics is just people backstabbing each other. But what politics really is, is, is the informal mechanisms in a company of how to get things done, right? It's not about being negative. It's just the informal structures that aren't written anywhere. So once you understand that, you know, the political landscape, leverage it. It's an essential part of driving your career. With that, I want to move to our final segment, which I've dubbed the lightning round. And these are four fun, quick questions to get to know some of your favorite memories at Ivy, as well as to get to know more about you. So the first question is, what was your favorite course at Ivy? Strategy. Arif, best um, for a couple of reasons, right? Um, It wasn't the traditional case. He'd always bring... um, like in my role in storytelling, you want people to remember, right? Not for the bad reasons, but you want people to remember. And and people don't remember words. They remember imagery and they remember stories, right? You still remember stories from your childhood, but you don't remember some conversations with you've had with your friends. Stories are, are magical. And what Arif did in every class is he brought in a story. When we were talking about assigning resources, it was M&Ms, right? He brought M&Ms to the class and the different color M&Ms were manufacturing and HR and, you know, R&D. And these imageries are things that, you know, we remember forever. So to me, that's not that there were other classes I really enjoyed. I, I enjoyed many of them. But I think in terms of my favorite to be in, that was it just because of the way he handled the class. You're not the first alum that I've interviewed who's mentioned RF in that class. So, um, so it must have been very memorable. Yeah. So with that being said, um, who was your favorite prof? And I can maybe guess who that might be (laughs) based on your first answer. Pretty much, pretty much. Just the way, again, the the way he handled that class. But, you know, there was other interesting profs um, that just made it fun, right? But uh, we were blessed with a bunch of uh, props that were really good in what they did. Some of them had their quirks, but we were, we, you know, our year was really blessed with, I'd say, pretty much every prof was um, was top-notch. But Arif stood out. What's a new hobby or habit you've taken up since uh, working from home? Oof. Um, I also have a newborn, so there's not a lot of hobbies. But one thing I did uh, this summer with the, with the staying at home more is uh, I have now a charcoal grill. So instead of just grilling barbecue, you know, burgers and uh, and hot dogs, I've gotten more into some complex meats. So, you know, cooking ribs, things that are a bit more evolved. So a lot more cooking. But uh, to keep it uh, stereotypically manly, I've decided to make it on the grill outside. Nice. I like that. You're also the third alum that I've interviewed who has bought a grill and who is uh, who is really developing their their grilling skills. Um, it must be something about Ivy MBAs and grills. It, it, it's not an expensive investment, so I didn't go get myself like a big green egg or anything like that. It's a standard kettle. But uh, it, you can do different things and things that are harder to do with propane. You know, propane is quick and dirty, but uh, charcoal is is fun. Like you have to master it a bit. So it gives a, it gives me something to play around with. You know, it keeps me outside of the house, which makes the wife happy too. So that's positive. 
Well, if we ever need some good barbecue, we know that there are a couple of Ivy MBAs out there that can, (laughs) that can cater it. And lastly, if you could be any movie character, who would you be and why? Oh, Iron Man or Thor. Iron Man or Thor, depending on the day. Oh, Um, interesting. Okay, so which days are Iron Man and which days are Thor? I I kind of love to be a blend of both. I'm I'm a big, big, big fan of the Marvel movies. My wife kind of gets annoyed at me because I'm like a kid. You know, my, my daughter watches Frozen over and over, and I watch, like, the Marvel movies over and over. But I just love these two characters, right? Like, Iron Man, Iron Man, like, tech genius, um, and Thor is just, like, he's super cool. Like, it's God of Thunder. Nice. Well, the weight rack behind you, it, it now makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get there eventually. <laughs> yeah. Well, with that being said, I want to say thank you, Shadi, for your time and your candidness. Uh, I know the listeners uh, really appreciated it, and I really enjoyed this conversation. Awesome. Thank you for having me. That's a wrap on our episode. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to Jay Deverett and Mihir Radij, my fellow Tech Club execs. And thank you to our career management advisor, Patty Guzzo. If you liked what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts now, which is a huge deal. So you can actually subscribe. So do it. We'll be back soon with another episode. Less chasing roles and more chasing experiences. That's the advice I would give, right? What, what experience can you add? So sometimes it's as simple as taking a side project in your same role or, you know, taking an extra assignment or working this other thing on the side. Um, there's a lot of experiences you can add without formally changing roles. And I think that's an under leveraged thing that people can, can take in mind.